welcome to Ivy League Murders. My name is Sarah Alcorn. I'm a Harvard graduate and a private investigator. And my name is Laura Rodriguez McDonald. I'm a University of Miami graduate, longtime crime aficionado, and part of a fourth generation NYPD family. Laura and I don't always agree on everything. With her NYPD roots and my criminal defense background, sometimes we find ourselves on opposite sides of the jury. We do share a mutual passion for crime solving, and we both grew up in Cambridge, steps away from Harvard University. On Ivy League Murders, we discuss cases where the best of the best make the worst decisions. We look at people who seemingly have it all and throw it all away. Hey, Laura, if our listeners want to support our podcast, what can they do? You can go to our website at clovercrestmedia.com, where we have merchandise, a donate button, and all of the books we talk about. We also can be found at buymeacoffee.com, and we would love any input or suggestions from our listeners, and we can be reached by email at ivyleaguemurders at gmail.com. And very importantly, if you enjoy the podcast, please hit the subscribe button and give us a five-star review. We really appreciate all the support we've gotten so far. So this episode is called David Harmon, A Murder in the Buckle of the Bible Belt. And thank you again for tuning in to Ivy League Murders. We just really appreciate all the shout-outs and the help and the support and uh hit the subscribe button please and tell all your friends and and join us on our facebook group ivy league murders podcast it's a lot of fun and we'd appreciate any input and feedback from you absolutely and if you know of like a ivy league based crime please shout out and let us know yeah and we'd love your feedback but let's dive right in so in this episode we're going to take you on a road trip to Olathe, Kansas. Does Olathe ring a bell with you? No, it's not Wizard of Oz or Dorothy. In a sea of endless grasslands, Olathe was where killers Richard Hickok and Perry Smith planned the Clutter family murders, as immortalized in Truman Capote's In Cold Blood. Capote wrote of the Kansas countryside. The countryside with its hard blue skies and the desert clear air has an atmosphere that is rather more far west than middle west. The local accent is barbed with prairie twang. The land is flat and the views are awesomely extensive. Horses, herds of cattle, a white cluster of grain elevators raising as gracefully as Greek temples are visible long before the traveler reaches them. In Cold Blood essentially began the true crime genre. Every True Crime Head has this book in their library. <laughs> it's basically always a list person, and it's usually the number one true crime book. Yep, or definitely in the top ten. Right, top ever, five. I mean. And why Capote, who was pretty obsessed with status and money and society, was compelled to write about Kansas and the clutter murders, we'll never know, but we're definitely glad he did. Today we're discussing another brutal murder in Kansas in the 1980s, a murder that the local and powerful church helped to sweep under the rug. It was around 2.30 a.m. on February 28, 1982. Gail and Richard Bergstrom were awoken by a loud banging on the wall they shared with their neighbors, David and Melinda Harmon. The Harmons were a lovely, young, religious couple the Bergstrands had become quite fond of. Richard Bergstrom grumbled and went back to bed. Gail, on the other hand, felt something was terribly wrong. About an hour later, Melinda came pounding on their door, crying hysterically and screaming that her husband David had been murdered. The investigation of David Harmon's murder would take detectives on a 20-year journey from the buckle of the Kansas Bible Belt to Harvard Business School and onto the top echelons of corporate America. 
We could not have done this episode without Merrick Fuchs excellent book, A Cold-Blooded Business, and we highly recommend it. And Sarah, it's actually, if you have an Audible subscription, it's actually free on Audible. Oh, it's so good. Too. So good. So I, I listened to it, it twice. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, me as well. <laughs> as always on Ivy League Murders, we begin by discussing the institution, which in this case is Harvard Business School. HBS was founded in 1908. The impressive alumni include Boston local Mike Bloomberg, actually... Our studio's in Medford. He's from Medford, their place. George W. Bush and Abigail Johnson, who heads Fidelity Investments, and she's the richest woman in Massachusetts. There's like too many kick-ass alumni to mention. Yeah, we would be going on the whole hour just naming that. (laughs) So Harvard Business School is right across the river from the regular sort of Harvard dorms, basically. It's still in Cambridge, though. And it is about as far a cry culturally as you can get from Kansas. So... I want to talk about another institution, uh, which is the Nazarenes. So you really cannot bring up the Nazarenes without bringing up Kansas City. That is the, the world center. This is where it all began. So the Nazarenes are super strict Christians, evangelistic, big missionary component. It's really about discipleship. And their credo is bringing God's love to a dying world. So Nazarenes believe in helping the poor and salvation through a personal relationship to God through Jesus Christ. Like I said, there's a large missionary component to it. And worldwide, I guess there are like two and a half million Nazarene Christians in about 160 countries. And I mean, to go a little further, because all Christians believe in a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ, but they believe in a very strict adherence to certain principles, values, and traditions. And they live by a very, very strict Nazarene dictum. And they don't drink, they don't smoke, they don't. I know it's changed over time, but the time period we were talking about, we're talking about limitations on music, movies, yep. absolute adherence to all of these principles. And through this type of strict behavior, you're supposed to become closer to God. Gotcha. Are you Nazarene? I'm just getting the sense, Laura, that you Did you, you might even be. get that by my lifestyle? Yeah. No, and so we're not making fun. We're okay. not. You know, I'm but, not making fun. So, She's making fun more of me and my... Uh, completely aberrant lifestyle. lifestyle. I'm a pagan too, I get it. So Aletha is kind of like a suburb of Kansas City. And Olathe actually means beautiful in the Shoni language. It's kind of amazing. And really after the Nazarene church put its headquarters in Kansas City, Olathe really built off with a lot of young professionals. It attracted other Nazarenes from around really around the world. It was kind of like a bedroom community to Kansas City with a heavy Nazarene influence. Exactly. You want to hear something really weird? So in our deep dive on our Manson episode, I read that Charles Manson was actually brought up in the Nazarene faith right it's, not, it's, not, it's like this bizarre right. coincidence but let's you know? not make too many comparisons there because Charles, i don't think charles manson's mother really lived in any way near the principles of the nazarene religion that's true in any way the way that the people we're going to talk about or at least the way our victim here did. born into a strict nazarene family melinda lambert was the daughter of j wilmer lambert lambert was the superintendent of the nazarene church really he was the archbishop in effect the pope of Olathe, which made Melinda the princess. And Melinda met David Harmon when they were both teenagers in the early 70s in Columbus, Ohio. They both worked at a summer camp run by the Nazarene Church, and the rules were strict. 
No drinking, card playing, dancing, and of course, no premarital sex. Thank Jesus, Cam. Melinda and David were smitten and fell in love and were married soon after she turned 19 and he turned 20. The Harmons were both committed to continuing to live in their faith, and in 1981, they moved to Olathe, Kansas, after Melinda's father got her a job at Mid-America Nazarene University. It's Olathe's biggest employer, Sarah. You think about this Mid-America Nazarene University, and it was a very, very different scene from other college campuses in the 80s, and Laura loves to go on and on about how fun UM was, so... (laughs) Take the floor, Laura, and tell us how fun you had at University of Miami I, during I don't the know. 80s. I, I okay. just I don't recall there being a documentary about Harvard in the 80s. Oh, you know what? Or okay. really at any time. But there is a documentary called The U about the time when I was at University of Miami. So if you want to see something really crazy, it's 30 by 30 ESPN documentary called The U. And you want to see some real insane behavior. Needless to say, we're very different at Mid-American Nazarene. Movies were forbidden. Certainly premarital sex was out, as we said. And the people, like, you know, students were expected to know their Bible. And on Saturday night, bust out the Bible and be studying it. Well, you couldn't go to the movies because the teachers did double duty and they basically monitored the movie theaters on the weekends to make sure the students were not going to the movies. Yeah, that's right. And really, Melinda was only expected to work until she got pregnant, started her family, and David got a job at a bank, and the couple settled in and joined the local church. The couple's faith and strict religious principles guided their life and their choices. The church remained the focus of their lives. David adored Melinda, though, and his co-workers said he was often spending the little money he had making sure she had every luxury in life. David was a total practical joker, definitely kept the staff laughing. In other words, we had read or in the book, there's a description of him like flicking rubber bands at the tellers who were trying to help other customers. No, he was like on his knees, like on the ground, flicking rubber bands at their feet so they'd be distracted. (laughs) So they would jump. David wasn't trying to climb the corporate ladder. He was just like a really great guy to work with. Lots of fun, went to work, did his job. Yeah. But not like super motivated. I mean, which is fine. Not everybody is. But he was just kind of everyone's favorite guy. He kind of lit up the whole office. And he used to like to really brag about his wife at work. Oh, he just adored Belinda. But he took his religion very seriously. And he was absolutely devoted to helping others. You know, and it was while working at Mid-America Nazarene that Melinda met Mark Mengelsdorf, who was a student. So Mark Mengelsdorf was from a lower middle class religious family, and he was determined to get far in life through both his intelligence and his hard work. So all reports of Mark depict an honest, kind of hardworking young man. So even in college, he took on a leadership role in clubs and as an RA, closely monitored other students' behaviors, making sure they weren't playing cards. I got caught playing cards at Harvard one time. It went down just really, really bad. Really? Yeah. Let her home to your parents and everything? (laughs) Because I got caught smoking pot. <laughs> and what we did in retaliation was our RA was into plants, so we planted pot seeds in all of his plants. <laughs> True, it's actually a true story. Oh, my God. Okay. So David and Mark also became friends really at Melinda's urging. Here's where I think we have to kind of talk about, I like 
that David Harmon is not the stiff religious guy, the stereotype. He's kind of a prankster. He's kind of a jokester. Melinda kind of breaks those stereotypes too. Melinda was a total flirt. You know? She was. She was fun, a flirt. She was really pretty. She was a real cute, tall blonde. I think she kind of worked it and liked male attention. Exactly. I don't blame her. But there's definitely kind of a weird element here when she develops this friendship with Mark and then kind of invites him to become friends with David and they develop this threesome, which is kind of bizarre. Why is this young 20-something-year-old man wanting to hang out with this young couple all the time? And vice versa. The neighbors definitely kind of raise their eyebrows that they would see Mark Mangelsdorf's car parked in the driveway all the time. They're kind of like, why are these three people all hanging around. This is a little weird. And it was weird. It seems that David wasn't really picking up on how weird it was, though. The three friends really seemed inseparable. And I think it's kind of like David was just kind of a good-natured guy and was kind of oblivious. David, meanwhile, had gained some weight. He was kind of settling into the marriage. And I don't think Melinda felt the same way. And she began to confide in Mark that she felt stuck in her marriage. David seemed completely unaware of the intimate friendship his wife and Mark shared, and he welcomed Mark into his home. Little did David know that Mark and Melinda were exchanging intimate letters and cards. Although the relationship appears to be emotional only due to the limits of their religion, which forbade adultery and divorce. We'd have to say that I think Mark was very opposite in character Definitely. to David. Definitely. Like, Mark came from a poor family he was ready to like conquer the world he was like ambitious to a fault yet he was going to go places and i really think this attracted melinda she really seemed to be fostering a closer relationship to mark than her own husband david she was in a dilemma how was she going to get out of her marriage divorce was just strictly prohibited by the nazarene faith I definitely think she had higher aspirations in life and she wanted more and David definitely wasn't living up to that. And she had developed this emotional affair. And even though it wasn't physical, I think sometimes emotional affairs can almost be more dangerous. We don't know whether it was physical or not. Even after reading the book twice, I'm still left with what did happen between them? Did anything happen between them? Was it purely emotional between right, we don't between, know. between Melinda and Mark? We will never know. They did spend a lot of time alone together. We really don't know what happened, but... Put it to you this way. Even if it was emotional, there's a real danger to a purely emotional affair. It's oh, never definitely. consummated. The person can kind of get idealized in your eyes, I think. You never, since you haven't fully expressed the relationship, you will always wonder, you'll always idealize that person. Yeah, and it can become almost like a nightly love where you see the person. I think she may have saw him as kind of like her savior who could rescue her from this situation. So on the night of February 8th, 1984, the police were called to the Harmons and they found Melinda hysterical and David had been bludgeoned to death in his bed. Melinda told a story of two black men coming in and attacking David while she was sleeping next to him. The men, according to Melinda, then demanded the keys to the bank where David worked. Then they knocked Melinda unconscious. She was unable to identify the two men further, saying they wore masks. Melinda claimed to be knocked out for an hour. She didn't immediately call the police. She called Mark first and then ran to her neighbors. Soon after the police arrived, Mark arrived freshly showered and in a sports jacket. 
An odd choice of a wardrobe, don't you think? Yeah. The investigators thought so, too. Yeah, exactly. And it was only the first of many things that would give the police pause. Like, things just did not add up. I mean, first of all, Melinda claimed to be in the bed when David was attacked. With such a bloody attack, David's face had been pulverized so badly that one of his eyeballs had been dislodged and rolled onto the floor. Melinda should have been covered in blood. Yet the only blood evidence the police found were high-velocity blood spatter on the bottom of Melinda's nightgown, indicating that she'd been standing a few feet away when the attack occurred. Part of the problem, huge problem in this investigation, though, is that the police could not get any information they got from Melinda was immediately shut down by her father. J. Wilmer Lambert came in like a tsunami and just basically cut the investigation up and, and was very disrespectful to the to the detectives as well. He called them bumbling idiots. He um you know, swore at them. Uh, he would not let them get near Melinda. She was allowed to not speak to the police, not be questioned. That's what happened initially. Like such was the long arm of the Nazarene network in Kansas City and Olathe. And his positions allowed him to do this. So the coroner arrived and assessed the scene, noticing that most of the blows were to David's eyes and face. This was a crime of passion. He concluded David had been asleep on his back when he was attacked and the murderer had a full view of him before the attack. His face was so pulverized. At first, the crime scene investigators thought he had suffered a gunshot blast to the face, just so you know, will like obliterate the face of a person. That's how bad they thought this was. On Ivy League murders tend to not focus on the gore of the murder, but we're talking about it here a little to just really show the extent of overkill that was used here in this crime. The other things that they found, Melinda's story is that two black guys break in and do this. They didn't find any African-American hair. They stake out the bank and no one shows up at the bank. And it would be absurd to steal the keys to the bank and do a robbery because it doesn't give you any of the access to the vault. It just gets you in the front door. It's like having the cleaning person's keys. It doesn't get you to any of the money. So nobody showed up at the bank. Nobody's trying to break into the bank. No forced entry at the home. That's right. And so the little bits of information that they get from Mark and Melinda are kind of bizarre. They ask them, hey, what happened that day? What they tell him is that Mark had gone over to the Harmons to play racquetball with David. They'd gone to lunch at McDonald's. And big surprise, Mark is feeling sick after his McDonald's lunch. It's kind of a off. It's kind so. of a continuing theme in this book that they eat at McDonald's constantly. <laughs> I'm not a huge fan of McDonald's. Oh my god, I can't eat that. I can't eat that food. Now that, that my daughter is not like, like yeah. a toddler, I'm like I never. But it's funny that they're really into McDonald's. In <laughs> I mean, it's not that I haven't been super hungry, like on a case, and pulled over at McDonald's and gotten like a kid's meal, and I always hate myself afterwards like okay, no really let's not like come on I, there are definitely times when a big mac is 
super yummy. So let's not. It is at the let's time. Let's not diss McDonald's. I'm not dissing McDonald's. Okay. I'm not dissing McDonald's. I'm just saying that it's the idea of it that's better than the actuality of it. So anyway, so Mark is feeling sick from his McDonald's lunch. David goes off to racquetball, leaving Mark and Melinda alone at the house. And so the investigators are interviewing Mark and Melinda. So Melinda comes out with like, yes, Mark and I were at the house and we took separate naps. And the investigators are like, WTF? What do you mean separate naps? Like, when do you guys take naps together? Then they took the step of searching Mark's apartment. Let's back up for a second and say what Mark tells them prior to them searching his apartment well, they tell mark they're going to search his apartment at which point mark confesses that they may come upon quite a mess when they go to his apartment don't be coy just freaking say it because i'm gonna say it mark shit his pants okay right and this is so bizarre that he comes right out and tells the investigators this and my only thought on this is that he must not have cleaned it up well and he knows they're gonna go to his apartment and this would just be like a bizarre thing to come upon someone's apartment and find like shitty pants like out in the open speak for yourself (laughs) (laughs) honestly i think when he was committing the crime he lost control of his bowels and that he had a physiological yeah i mean i think that's what the investigators are thinking too they're like how does a grown man lose control of his bowels and so mark explains you know hey i got sick from the mcdonald's lunch but i think your theory is right was he trying to explain away the fact that he was freshly showered in the middle of the night it doesn't make any sense right but the other weird thing is that at mark's apartment they find a blood stain inside his front door and mark's neighbors also heard him vacuuming in the middle of the night there was some blood evidence that was found in the vacuum this unfortunately is another huge misstep in this case though it was pre-dna i guess that the forensics was not really up and running they didn't have really a great way to test for the blood so even though i think there's plenty of you know it just they couldn't put a case together but i also really think they were under this big strong arm of the nazarene and i think they basically were told to shut this case down that's what i read between the lines in this case well i think also had it just been one of them i think it might have been easier to indict that person but since there was two i think there was reasonable doubt so they knew that they were involved but it was hard for them to know exactly what had happened and neither one of them were talking But police continued to see Mark and Melinda as prime suspects, but they had little evidence to go on. Sarah, they even consulted a psychic at one point in their desperation to solve this crime. Perhaps they knew the case had been bungled in the early days when Melinda was treated with kid gloves. The police had since read all of Mark and Melinda's correspondence and saw a clear motive. Melinda wanted out of her marriage and divorce was strictly forbidden in the Nazarene church. Unfortunately, with no blood match and little concrete evidence, the case went cold. It was a strong circumstantial case, but but nothing. I think they had enough, but I think it got shut down. That's my own personal takeaway from The DA at the time didn't, and that's what Um, it comes down to. In a strange twist in the case, Mark and Melinda could barely look at each other after the murder. It was as if David's death had also killed their blossoming intimacy. The police closely monitored them both, but there was no communication between them. Melinda moved away, and Mark stayed in Olathe and finished his degree at Mid-America. So... What happens in the meantime? So, but also before we go on, one person who could not move on was David's surviving parent, his father, John Harmon. He and his wife couldn't understand why anyone would kill their sweet, 
funny son. David's mother died shortly after David's murder, and John Harmon couldn't understand how the Aletha police could just let Melinda and Mark go on with their lives. And to add insult to injury, J. Wilmer Lambert, Melinda's father, snubbed John's socially as well just to like exclude terrible things terrible so fast forward 20 years and the cold case unit was looking to work on some cases immediately the Harmon case came up so detectives bill ward and steve james decided to take a big chance and try to see if melinda would talk to them after all these years they decided she was a better bet rather than mark but they were wondering, like, how is she going to react to a knock on the door 20 years later? And where were Melinda and Mark after 20 years? So Melinda had moved to Delaware, Ohio, went back to school and remarried a successful dentist. She was now Melinda Raish. She was mother of three and by all accounts, a typical soccer mom living in a palatial home in a Tony suburb. So I just want to pause here. I mean, people know I am a detective. I have been one for over 20 years. And I can't tell you, I've had interviews like this where you are showing up to somebody's door and you have no idea what their reaction is going to be to you. Just must have been just full of suspense for these detectives going in to speak to her. Oh, I can't imagine. Yeah. So, I mean, much to their surprise, Melinda invited them in with a like, hey, can I make you guys some coffee? And I'll tell you something as an investigator, Somebody offers you coffee or a soda, you take it right away. Oh, I bet. Yeah. And drink it slowly? You drink it slowly because that's your in. I think the other surprising thing right off the bat to the detectives was that Melinda told a completely different story. She now says there's only one intruder and that they were wearing kind of like a homemade mask. They said, hey, do you remember what your testimony was that it was two black men? who broke in with masks and everything like that. But now there's only one intruder. I think their jaws dropped when they heard that because they kind of knew they almost had her at that point because she had changed her story. So radically. Exactly. So, so radically. They started putting pressure on her and she agreed to talk to them at the police station after they threatened to talk to her husband's associates, the neighbors, the school, the mothers of her children's friends. She should have immediately asked for an attorney, as anybody should in these situations. Absolutely. But instead, she slowly begins to implicate Mark, and she talks about their emotional affair and also her desire to leave the marriage to David. She begins to say she thinks Mark was the one in the mask, but deny planning the murder. She told the detectives, I feel in my heart it was Mark. So the next day, James and Ward went back to talk to her, and at that point, Melinda shuts them down right away like she either spoke to an attorney or to her husband she definitely would not talk to them any more than she already had but she had said plenty at that point you know you really have to wonder why did she implicate herself and mark and why after all these years why say anything true I mean, was it remorse? Was it weighing on her? We'll get to Mark next, who reacts quite differently. So it makes me think it may have weighed on her a little bit that she would implicate herself in it a little bit or start to kind of waver on her story. Yeah, that's true. She doesn't admit at this point that she planned it. She really does implicate Mark at this point. Their next step is to go and try to talk to Mark Mangelsdorf. So his life had gone a lot better in the past 20 years, or had gone differently, put it to you that way. 
Yes, I mean, Mark really had gone for the brass ring. I mean, after finishing college in Olathe, he had gone on to attend Harvard Business School, and he had become a very successful executive. He had actually become the vice president of Pepsi, and he was super popular with his employees. I had read also one of the mantras of like the Pepsi execs was, if you cut me, I bleed Pepsi. And really, Mark didn't seem to have any of this like cutthroat stuff. One deal that he was famous for at Pepsi, though, was brokering a deal between Starbucks and Pepsi. So Starbucks, all those like little bottles of Starbucks that you see at every gas station, at Wegmans, at wherever you shop. Mark Mengelsdorf was responsible for brokering that relationship. So he brought like a totally OG company like Pepsi with this like new, at that time, this new hip Starbucks married them basically in this deal. He's like this corporate superstar. You know, I'm sure they study his model at business schools and all of that. Well, maybe not anymore. Maybe not anymore. (laughs) But I think it's fair to say that Mark is a complicated person. And you had just kind of asked the question about Melinda. I think for Mark, did it weigh on him? I don't know. Did he compartmentalize the murder completely? We don't know yet what actually happened that night. But he really certainly did move on with his life. And... Yeah, I don't buy it with Mark. I I don't see any remorse. There's footage of Mark. He absolutely denies it. I don't buy it. I think that he has no conscience whatsoever about it and only really cares for what's best for him. I had read certain things about Mark that he really did take great care of his employees and Laura's giving me like the hairy eyeball now. I mean, little, little atonement for bludgeoning your friend to death. I... I, agree. I mean, he didn't give his salary to charity every year. Like, so he was good to his employees. That should be an expectation of like a regular human being, not like a gold star. No, you're absolutely right. And so I just think about him at taking classes at Harvard Business School. And little did they know that they had a murderer in their midst. We really don't think of these like Ivy covered buildings, these institutions, housing killers, they sometimes they look like successful executives, right? And this is where Mark Mangelsdorf had ended up after 20 years. Well, I mean, I think that's the fascination, right? And that behind the behind the premise of the podcast is that often a murderer can just look like you or I or anybody. And we can't always spot evil. You're absolutely right. And As the investigators had kind of predicted, he was a much tougher nut to crack. And like you said, he professed his total innocence. And he lawyered up right away with high-power attorney Mickey Sherman to represent him. They were building their case, though, and it would take another year or more for DNA tests to be done before arrest warrants were issued. And on December 3rd, 2003, Melinda was arrested and charged with first-degree murder. It would take another year and a half for Mark to be arrested after new DNA tests showed the blood on his door was likely David's. Melinda's trial began on April 11, 2005. The prosecution had her on tape admitting she and Mark had an inappropriate relationship and that she thought Mark was the killer, but she denied any part of the murder. The prosecution argued that since the church forbade divorce, she saw murder as the only way out. Mark testified on her behalf. The jury didn't believe either one of them, and she was found guilty. It was then that Melinda decided to make a deal. And I don't think it took her long. And about six months behind bars, looking at about 25-year sentence before she decided to cut a deal and to turn on Mark. 
you have to understand Mark had professed his innocence up to like the adamantly, uh, like adamantly convincingly up to the 11th hour. And so he knew if they went to trial and he got convicted, you're talking about life in prison. Yeah, at least 20 years. And I think once she was found guilty and once she agreed to testify against him, I think he knew he was going to get convicted. And she made a deal and took an 8 to 15 year sentence, chance of parole in five, and she took it. And not long after, Mark was offered the same deal and in a dramatic turn of events. He went from absolutely professing his innocence to pleading guilty. Yeah, and he really shocked his friends, his second wife at that time, and his colleagues. Just nobody imagined that this sort of mild-mannered, successful executive was capable of the kind of rage it took to bash his friend's head in so bad. No, it was really a shock to everybody. And was justice served? I mean, I don't think it was. I mean, Mark was freed after serving 10 years for this brutal killing. And Melinda was released in 2015 after serving just nine years. And we have to go back to John Harmon, David's father, the victim's father, was really outraged that these plea deals were even on the table, that they ended up doing so little time for the brutal slaying of his son. This is a case, Laura and I have gone back and forth and back and forth about it. And I got to say, in summing this up, I feel like this is the kind of case where it leaves more questions than answers questions. This case just leaves me baffled. I think it leaves us baffled as to motive because you just wonder why, because they didn't run off together. But I think that there isn't always an answer for something as illogical as murder. And it just shows that evil and betrayal can lurk anywhere. And I hope maybe our listeners have some insight into this case and to why was Mark a sociopath? Was he a psychopath? Was he trying to save Melinda? I mean, maybe maybe our listeners will have some insight and maybe we can have a discussion about it maybe on our Facebook page, on Instagram, somewhere just kind of like I think, get some insight. I think Melinda was scared that her reputation would take a huge hit if she divorced in the Nazarene oh, def- Church. Definitely. And uh, maybe she saw murder as the only way out. Obviously, murder can never be an option. But in her mind, that was an option. Yeah, we, that's we, tragic. I really look forward to our listeners coming back with us for theories about what they think happened in yeah, this case. Yes, feedback. The book is excellent, but I don't think it really answers that central question. What is the real motive behind this murder? Yeah, I think it's you know? kind of left to be interpreted, and I think I'd be interested in other people's thoughts. We would love it if anyone could reach out to us. Uh, We are on Instagram at Ivy League Murders, Twitter. We have a great Facebook group, Gmail at Ivy League Murders at Gmail. We would love to have your feedback and input. Yeah, because this one, I'm still scratching my head over this one. Me too. Like I've really tried to think about it in so many different ways. I think sometimes you look at murders and oftentimes you can go like, oh, greed, oh, affair, sick of the marriage or what have you. It's not a clear-cut motive, and it's kind of driving me nuts. Yeah, well, I think perhaps we're underestimating the uh, power of an emotional affair. Maybe. But we look forward to all of your input, and we thank you for listening for another week to Ivy League Murders. Murder, murder, murder.